play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, the last meal of Tom Likas. Tom Likas is a longtime radio host and shock jock. Do people still use that term? I don't know. Uh, who now hosts the Tom Likas show in podcast form. He also hosts a podcast about wine and spirits and cigars called The Tasting Room with Tom Likas. And Tom Likas is very controversial and divisive because of the way he talks about women. His most famous segment is called Likas 101. And uh, this is where he, he calls himself the professor and he teaches men how to get laid more while spending the least amount of time, money, and effort on a woman. Here's a little montage of his shows. Girls, women, they get everything they want. Guys are lining up to give it to them. At the same time, they're little bitches, you know. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to go out with you. What kind of car do you drive? I'm not going to talk to you. Where do you live, Arlena? Forget it. I'm not going to talk to you. That uh, episode where Superman is faced with kryptonite and suddenly he loses his superpowers. That's what chicks are like after they hit the big 3-0, after they pass their expiration date. I get something at age 52 that I couldn't get at age 19. You know what that is? The attention of 19-year-old girls. (laughs) It's absolutely true. As you probably know, if you are a regular listener to this program, I have stated, much to the chagrin of women all over America, that the best way to get chicks and keep chicks around is to treat them like crap. So when you meet a nice girl who isn't necessarily the hottest, maybe you just jump right in with both feet, sign the contract, get married, you know, because you're just happy that anybody was nice to you. You know, somebody who's a seven open their legs to you or seven and a half. Maybe she's a big chunk cola. You know what I'm talking about? Just a chunk K. But, uh, you know, she's nice and she knows how to make beef stroganoff. So when I heard that Tom was speaking on a panel at a conference that I was attending, I knew that I had to get him on the podcast. I've never been a regular listener to Tom Likas' show. I'm not in his demographic, uh, but I've been played clips over the years, and I've always just been so aghast that this is something that is happening on the radio across the country, and and people are just letting this happen. I mean, this guy has hundreds of thousands of listeners. So uh, I am the kind of person who thinks that it is interesting to talk to people who I don't agree with instead of avoiding them. Uh, So I was hell-bent on getting Tom Likas on the show. I wanted to know what he was like as a person, not just as a shock jock radio personality. And I also wanted to know what had happened to him, what happened in his life to make him talk about women this way. I mean, something had to have happened. It doesn't, people just don't talk like this. You guys heard the montage. Uh, So Tom invited me up to his hotel room in the hotel we were both staying at for this conference to do the interview. I refer to myself today as America's original feminist. And the reason I believe I'm America's original feminist 
It's because uh, you can pay for your dinner and I'll pay for mine. And by the way, uh, you stay in your apartment and I'll stay in mine because we're equal. Why should men be paying? We also talk about the joys of going old school and buying excellent quality meat from a butcher. I chat with Tom's Butcher in Los Angeles, Marcondes Meats, a multi-generational family operation. And co-owner Lou DeRosa says he can often guess what someone's going to order based on the way they look and their personality. What is the personality in general of a ribeye steak eater? Can I say a dude? Sure, of course. <laughs> yeah, a dude. A dude that wants something that tastes good. But first, Tom Likas. Tom started his radio career in 1970. I read that you first were on the radio when you were 14. Is that true? Yeah, I won a contest at a radio station in Babylon, New York. Uh, it was called the Student DJ Contest, and I heard the promo on the air that said, uh, if you're in high school, write to us and tell us why you want to be a student DJ. And I won the contest, and I went down to the station. And my mother was in the car, and she said to me, Honey, they're never going to put you on the air. They're going to give you, like, a coffee mug or something and take you on a tour of the station. So I just don't want you to be disappointed. I said, Mom, I'm going to be on at 8 o'clock this morning. She said, Well, I understand. I know you believe you're going to be on. But I just want you to be prepared in case you're not on. And my mother and father, who were annoyed at having to get up Saturday morning and drive me 20 miles to the radio station, were sitting in their car in the pouring rain, and at 8 a.m. they heard my voice come out of the radio. And that's how I started. I was interested in music, and uh, like every 14-year-old, I loved the opportunity to go down to the station and tell them they were playing all the wrong music and that I was going to show them the right music to play. And that's where I got my first lesson in radio, when the program director met me at the front door of the station, and he had a stack of cartridges in one hand, he had a stack of what we call liner cards or cue cards in the other hand. And he, he held out his hands. He said, this is what you're going to play and this is what you're going to say. And of course, I was mortified because I told everyone in my high school that I was going to be on the radio playing all the great music that they're waiting for. The radio doesn't play. And instead, I played my first song was It Hurts to Be in Love by Gene Pitney, a song from 1962. It was not quite what I was promising my friends at school. So what would you have played if you got to do the playlist yourself? I can't even remember at this point. I was so disappointed, so heartbroken. Uh, I was trudging out of the radio station. By the way, I had prepared for weeks calling out records that I was going to play, and I had them in a big bag from the Sam Goody record shop where I bought a lot of the records. And so I'm trudging out of the radio station with my bag of unplayed records. And the program director met me on the way out of the station. And he said, you know what? You were pretty good. Would you mind coming back? And suddenly I had a career. Really? So it wasn't a teen show, though? They just let you come back like in a regular show? No, I came back as a fill-in for other people on the weekend. I, went to, I was going to high school at the time. So on Saturdays and Sundays, people who didn't show up, I was there. I think it says something about your personality, though, that... Being 14 and getting an hour to be on radio wasn't enough for you. You were like, I want my songs. I want to say what I want to say. Like, that was disappointing to you. I think to anybody else, that would have been a dream. Right. Uh, I didn't care about being on the radio. I cared about playing my music. So Tom got his start in radio when he was 14 years old. But he wanted to be a super rich and famous radio personality. And he credits his success to an ex-girlfriend who dumped him. 
Yes, that happened in New York. I was uh, uh, living with this woman, and uh, when she met me, I was the producer and the co-host of a funny call-in radio show in New York. And uh, at some point, the, me and the partner who were doing the radio show broke up. And so suddenly I went from being on the radio and being on stage doing stand-up comedy and everything. Suddenly I was working in customer service at Citibank. And so suddenly this girl did not want to be with me anymore. So one day while I was at work, uh, she uh, threw out all my furniture into the hallway of an apartment building in Manhattan, changed the locks, and then called me where I was working and said, you better get home and get your stuff. It's out in the hallway. So I had to leave work at a rent a van. I had to go there, and she's like yelling out the window at me. She couldn't stop yelling at me. And uh, so years later, when I was doing my first job in L.A., the biggest radio market in terms of revenue in America, amazingly, this woman saw me on 2020. And uh, there was the mic flag that said the name of the station, KFI. So she called KFI and got me on the phone. And she said to me, do you ever get back to New York? Like she wanted to get back together with me. I was like, never, <laughs> never, no way. Was that motivating for you to get a better job? Or was that what kind of inspired you to form the outlook that you have on relationships and women? Both. Uh, I, I was obsessed with making as much money in the radio business as I could. And I'm very honest about it. So what I made the day she called, I made 20 times as much with time. And uh, she, to this day, can't stand me. She can't stand me. She's out there somewhere. I think you are most known for what you do say about women on your radio show. Where did you get the balls to talk this way on the radio? Where did it come from? You know, I'm telling the truth as I see it. So I have no reason to be embarrassed about it. People try to say, well, aren't you embarrassed? How, how could you? But, uh, you know, the, the reality is that Many things I say are jokes, but many of the things I say I mean sincerely. I, I refer to myself today as America's original feminist. And the reason I believe I'm America's original feminist is because uh, you can pay for your dinner and I'll pay for mine. And by the way, uh, you stay in your apartment and I'll stay in mine because we're equal. You don't need to move in with me and have me pay your rent. You don't need me to pay for your dinner. You got your own job. Women are the majority in colleges now. They're getting most of the degrees. Why should men be paying? I actually agree. I mean, I have so many friends who are like, oh, I went out with some guy. He wouldn't pay on the first date. He's done. I'm like, why is the guy obligated to pay? I always offer. I figure once you like me slash love me, then you can treat me to something. And I'll treat you. But you don't know me yet. So I don't think you actually do owe me anything. Well, and that's the bottom line. I mean, why do we owe it to women to pay for drinks? And then even if, if there is something that looks like a relationship, you know, why are we required to pay for the room in Vegas or uh, pay for breakfast? lunch and dinner and then guys who have women moving in with them and they're paying their cell phone bills and paying their student loans off why makes no sense to me i was not expecting to agree with anything that tom like said but when he puts it that way yes i do not have a problem with things being equal i also feel that things should be equal uh so when i was sitting in this hotel room across from tom Likas, i liked him i was actually very charmed by him we had great conversation. We talked about his childhood and food. And I mean, being a radio personality myself, it was interesting to hear about how he got his start. But Tom Likas was very different one-on-one -on -one in a hotel room than he is when you listen to his show. 
which I've been listening to getting ready for this podcast episode. So I left the hotel room thinking he's a great guy. And then, you know, he's calling women the B word. He's using this super annoying whiny voice to imitate us. He's stereotyping. He's lumping us all together into one obnoxious gold digging caricature, which makes him hard to warm to. Unless, of course, you're one of the hundreds of thousands of listeners who tune into his podcast. There is a huge audience of people who want to listen to the professor preach. Besides that, that one event with that woman who kicked you out, I mean, did you, have you just had bad luck with a certain kind of woman that's ruined you in this way that you just have this opinion? Because, I mean, not everybody feels like they're getting taken advantage of by women, that they're being, you know, taken for their money. You know, what is it that that kind of scarred you? I don't feel scarred. Um, I feel that with time, I realized that um, it isn't me. It's the time we're in. You know, I'm, my grandmother was a traditional housewife. My grandfather owned uh, an oven building business. So he would go out and he would uh, be down there uh, in, in the heat and the fire and making ovens. And then he would come home to my grandmother, who raised three kids, who made dinner, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, she got down on her hands and knees and used a toothbrush to scrub the grout in the bathroom between the tiles. She was, you know, fantastic. So when my grandfather came home, he brought his paycheck and he got an allowance. But he was happy because when he came home, his socks were folded, his meals were made, his kids were well behaved. He got something for, you know, he had services rendered for what he paid. Uh, today we have situations with women. They still want men to buy them gifts and take them places and take them to dinner, but they don't want to perform any of the tasks my grandmother performed. Now, I don't want women to be like my grandmother. I, I love the fact that women are getting college degrees and making more money, but my response to that is, but because you're not rendering services, I don't owe you anything, not on the first, second, or third date, not if I live with you, not if I'm married to you. You pay half, and I pay half because you're equal. That's what equality means to me. Everybody pays. The problem is many women, you know, they've grown up with Walt Disney, and they've grown up with uh, Snow White and Prince Charming and Beauty and the Beast, and they believe that there's going to be some guy coming in on a white horse and paying their visa bill. Um, but the reality is I, I truly believe in equality. There are women who believe that they are equal at the same time they deserve to get special benefits for being a woman. And I refused uh, to uh, provide those benefits. That doesn't make me crazy or a misogynist. Is your blood boiling? Are you cheering for Tom? Either way, there is no denying that Tom Likas is a fascinating person. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Tom talks about life as a vintner and tells the story of the very first time he took a sip of alcohol. Just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off the beaten path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. 
And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow. And visit a Landon Gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. All right, are you ready to talk about food and wine? Me too. Me too, me too. I'm ready. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, Tom also has a podcast about wine and spirits called The Tasting Room. Uh, It's called Pedal to the Metal. Uh, It is a big California Syrah. It isn't subtle in any way. Uh, It has high alcohol content, high fruit, high oak. Very satisfying for a lot of people who like that style. They don't write for wine journals. They they are everyday people like the people listening to us right now. And let me tell you, now this fall, uh, you're going to find this out first. I haven't even announced this on my own show yet. We're about to release a Cabernet. And uh, the grapes are from San Inez Valley, which is the area where my ranch is. And so uh, San Inez Valley is the area where they film the movie Sideways. If anybody who's seen it knows what the area looks like. And I'm right there. I have a 20-acre ranch there. Do you remember your very first drink, how old you were, who you were with? It's, um, it's a story that uh, isn't pretty uh, because my dad was an alcoholic. And when I was four or five years old, we were coming home from my grandmother's house. We took the subway in New York. We got off the subway. My father had a can of Ballantine beer on the subway with him in a brown paper bag. When we got off the subway... He gave me the beer and said, here, have some, and then laughed hysterically as I was stumbling down the block. So you drank enough of it to get drunk as a five-year-old. Doesn't take that much, but yes, I was stumbling, and I remember it. I remember the experience. How did you feel in that moment, like feeling drunk when you're so little? I, I didn't know what being drunk was. I, you know, frankly, I didn't even understand when adults were drinking alcohol. I didn't even know why they were doing it or what they were doing. I, I just knew that was something adults did. So I, he gave me the can, and I drank from it because he told me to. Um, you know, and you could go one way or the other when your father gives you a beer at age four or five. And uh, me, I went the other way. I, I, did not, I did not start drinking as a child or as a teenager. I, you know, I, I kind of uh, bided my time, and I frankly have always been on the side of drinking stuff that is quality. So if I don't have the good stuff available, I'm not interested. I didn't have a good relationship with my dad. That's not a secret. I've talked about it on the show many times. So I I intentionally tried to do the opposite of anything he did, and that included drinking beer at 10 o'clock Sunday morning before the game, things like that. Tom's first sip of alcohol was a Ballantine beer, which is one of the oldest brands of beer in the United States. The brewery was established in 1840, and it used to be the third largest brewer in the country. But now it is owned by Pabst, which I thought was interesting because I had actually never heard of Ballantine beer. And in 2014, Pabst used Ballantine to enter the craft beer market for the first time when they introduced Ballantine IPA. 
Now, of course, IPAs are super trendy now here in the Pacific Northwest. I think people are actually starting to get a bit tired of them. They are so trendy. Uh, But IPAs actually existed back in the 1800s, and Ballantyne was making an IPA in the 1800s. According to their website, quote, that old IPA has been credited as an inspirational influence for the present-day craft beer revolution in America. So if you're tired of IPAs, blame Ballantyne Beer. Well, let's get to the question that the show centers around. What would your last meal be? My last meal would be, uh, I like my own cooking. I do. Um, You know, all the years I have, whether I've been married or divorced or living alone or not, I never wanted to be like some people, desperate. You know, like always having to go out to Subway to pick up dinner because there's nobody to make dinner for me. I've always been all about making great things. So for me... I would want to have a 35-day aged ribeye steak uh, cooked on a cast iron skillet uh, with some pepper and some coriander and some salt. And uh, with that, I'd love to have a big glass of Bordeaux. That would be my last meal, and I'd be perfectly happy. Don't need sides. Don't need scalloped potatoes or whipped potatoes. I don't need corn or asparagus. Just that, and I would be a happy man. It's very paleo, very in right now. Absolutely. Absolutely right. How do you like your steak cooked, and how do you know when it's done, and how do you like to cook it? Uh, Rare to medium rare, because that's what goes best with wine. And and frankly, if you cook meat more than that, why spend so much on it? Um, But also, I do believe that uh, you have to use a meat thermometer. I use an electronic meat thermometer, so I get the result I want every time. I don't cut the meat open. I don't press it with my finger. I always go by the thermometer, and my uh, steak comes off the grill at about 125, and then it rests for 5 to 10 minutes, which will bring the temperature up to about 135, and that's a great steak to be. Uh, I also have some incredible butchers. I, I think the key to making a great steak is never buying them at supermarkets ever. And that includes Whole Foods or anywhere else. Uh, I buy my steaks from a butcher who trims them my way. By the way, I don't make a steak less than two inches thick. I don't think you can make a great steak less than two inches thick because you want to get it charred on the outside, but rare or medium rare on the inside. And if the steak is too thin, it cooks down too much. What's the name of your butcher? Well, I have one in Santa Barbara, Shalu Meat Company, and uh, those guys are fantastic. And then I have uh, the one in uh, uh, L.A. that I use, and that would be Marconda Meats at the farmer's market. These guys are artisans. They're fantastic. They make their own sausage, but they have got a a, a refrigerator where they dry-age those meats and Today, I could buy a prime rib and say, I'm coming back for it in a month. And there it will be. And they have the bone properly taken out and then twined back in, ready to put in the oven. Not only that, uh, the, the butcher knows the quality I'm looking for. And so I don't talk about price with him. I say, here's what I want. Give me that. And he has it ready for me when I get there. It's amazing. And that, to me, I think people are missing out on life. You know, I'm old enough that when I was a kid... Um, you couldn't get meat in the supermarket. There were not as many supermarkets. So my mom used to take me to the butcher in the Bronx on 170th Street. It was next to the Luxor Theater, which is no longer there. And uh, that was on the way home from school. We stopped and bought meat every day. And so we went home and we made that night's dinner. And going to the butcher and talking over the counter to the butcher is 
part of my ritual as a kid. So I'm very comfortable with it today. That was literally my next question. So you answered it for me. Yeah, I know it's something about the experience and it feels so old fashioned and cool. When he's in LA, Tom Likas buys his meats at Marconda's Meats. I'm Lou DeRosa. I am one of the owners, my, my father and I, uh, own this shop. He's been here since long before I was born and my grandfather before that. So we're just a long, long family history of meat markets. Marconda's Meats has been at the original farmer's market at 3rd and Fairfax in Los Angeles since 1941. Lou has been working there since 1979 and all three of his sons work behind the counter today. Were you kind of raised to take over this business or to work in this business and your son's the same or is this just a choice and and something that you are naturally drawn to well I'll, I'll be honest it's it's really for me it's a choice I've done a few other things I, I even left for a couple years and sold furniture and I did roofs and electrical work and all kinds of things and I love this business I guess it was it was bred into me <laughs> because there's something about the ambience of the farmer's market that just makes this, it's a magnet. Waiting on the customers, that's the fun part. Cutting the meat, now it's natural. I would say I'm a very, very good meat cutter. Uh, but as far as the, the attraction to the business, it's really the customers. And waiting on the same families for generations. I have, I have customers here who have shopped here for 50 and, and 60 years. So it's, uh, it's kind of fun. That, that, that's a real plus. What is the state of the butcher industry in America right now? As far as from my outlook, I would say it's actually been resurging for the last, oh, maybe 10 years. 10 or 15 years ago, there were no butchers. As a matter of fact, one of the local newspapers wrote an article and, and it said the butchers are back. And that seemed to be about the time uh, where... Customers were complaining, oh, we go to the grocery store, we can't get this cut of meat, we can't get a custom cut, we can't get something uh, specially cut. We, we want something small, we want something locally produced, or we want something without antibiotics. And about that time, butchers and customers asking me if I would like to teach them and, and phone calls, do you do butchering classes, have really <laughs> increased. And, and now I see more independent butchers opening up on the street too. Uh, I wish them luck. I, it's a hard business. I've asked this to bartenders and baristas. If you kind of judge like a customer on what they order, it's like, oh, that's a steak guy. Oh, that's a brisket person. Is that something that you do in your business? Somebody walks in and you're like, I think I know what they're going to order based on what they look like. We hear certain voices and we say that guy's going to order a filet. And uh, we hear other voices and say that that guy's going to order a ribeye. And we're usually right. For instance, a, a customer speaking with a French accent that sounds like a French chef, they're going to order filet mignon almost every time. And then a, a, a guy with a baseball cap on, didn't shave his beard this morning, he's going to order a ribeye steak. There is a little bit of stereotype, but not, not 100% because they usually walk right up to what they want. So since you've been uh, a listener of Tom Likas' show, you kind of have an idea about his personality. Does the ribeye steak match Tom Likas? Uh, yes, it actually does. A hundred percent. What is, what is the personality in general of a ribeye steak eater? Can I say a dude? Sure. Of course. <laughs> yeah. A dude, a dude that wants something that tastes good. And, and usually with the ribeye, they don't even care if it's all natural. They don't care if it's, they just say, Hey dude, I want your best steak. I want something with flavor. Uh, 
And that's always a ribeye steak and, and, and even a bone-in ribeye steak at that. That's actually, I should ask you about that because I I don't know very much <laughs> about steak. And so when I'm at a restaurant even, I'm like, I don't know which one to get. I don't know what is the best. So the ribeye has the most flavor. I feel like the filet mignon, people get it because it's so tender, but it doesn't have as much flavor, right? Right. Really, a filet steak needs a good chef to cook it. If you cook a filet steak, it's not going to have a lot of flavor. It's, it's, it's kind of going to dry out, even if it's medium rare, unless you get a, a real good quality prime or something that has some marbling in it. It's, it's going to be kind of dry, not real flavorful. That's where the chef comes in and they make a, a special sauce and a, a mushroom topping or whatever, or some truffles and different things to make a filet mignon uh, have a real good flavor. If you want just the flavor of a good steak and, and not hire a professional chef to cook it, the ribeye has the most flavor, but sometimes people are turned off by the fat content because a good quality prime or even top high quality choice uh, ribeye is going to have maybe uh, 25% fat. And so that offends some people. And that's when we switch you over to, uh, to a New York steak, which is half of the T-bone, uh, the side opposite the filet. My mouth is literally watering for a juicy steak. So I'm going to wipe the drool off of my chin. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, it turns out that Tom Likas truly is a gourmet. We're going to talk about the condiments that he's been making from scratch. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. For his last meal, Tom Likas wants something simple and delicious, a seared ribeye steak and a big glass of red wine. But that doesn't mean that he is not adventurous in the kitchen. He does like to experiment. You said you like to make things yourself, and I wondered if that extended into anything else. Are you crafty? Do you do any kind of things with your hand? Also, would you consider, you know, learning butchery at all, going to Italy and spending some time doing that? No, I'd go to Italy to learn pasta making. I would definitely do that, which is, by the way, the plot this season of Master of None, if you watch that on Netflix. Great show, right? Um, but I'm going to tell you my most recent creation, and it's two weeks ago. Um, I am on a rampage against high fructose corn syrup. And so I made chocolate syrup from scratch with sugar, the way you're supposed to make it. And it came out amazing, amazing. It's killer. Uh, it, it's amazing. So my next... Uh, method of cutting out high fructose corn syrup is making ketchup uh, because Heinz ketchup as iconic as it is it has high fructose corn syrup and many people have said that that is the key to obesity in America in the last 30 years so I'm trying to make things myself I'm going to make my own cola syrup without high fructose corn syrup 
I love this. I will warn you, I have heard that it is really hard to make ketchup taste like ketchup because it's one of the few things that most people never make. And so you're used to that flavor, that iconic flavor. So sometimes, you know, if you go to a fancier restaurant and they make their own ketchup, it doesn't taste like the ketchup we're used to. It's like tomato condiment. So I'm curious to see how satisfied you are with your results. Well, I'm going to tell you, I was at a restaurant and anybody who goes to the Napa Valley ever, it's a restaurant called Mustard's Grill in Yountville. And they make their own mustard and their own ketchup. So I've had handmade ketchup. And uh, it, it was not hard to adjust to. If it was well-made, uh, it's a great experience. And by the way, I love everybody loves Heinz ketchup, but it was even better than that. So I'm ready. And I'm ready for the challenge. What have you been doing with your chocolate syrup? Is this like mixing into milk or on top of ice cream? Both. Mm-hmm. Both. <laughs> You're just syrup on everything now. Yes. Well, I've, I found a great organic ice cream at Costco. I don't know if they sell it outside of California, called Humboldt Creamery. And it is natural vanilla, no uh, no corn syrup. Uh, it's milk and cream and very simple ingredients that you can pronounce. And so when I, when I was enjoying that, and it's so good, by the way, when I was enjoying it, it deserved to have the right syrup on it, and I couldn't buy the right syrup. I don't want to wait for Passover for you bet to have their kosher for Passover virgin when they use sugar instead of corn syrup. Yes. Okay. What are some of your other food memories from the Bronx as a kid? Knishes. The original knishes, the square ones, not these big, like, like potato pies that they sell today, but they were square at a crust on the outside. They were deep fried and fantastic, and they would go great with a Zion kosher hot dog, or a, you know, not Hebrew National, Zion is the kosher hot dog of choice to anyone who knows. That's what I would say. And I read you grew up Catholic, but you do have Jewish blood in you, right? My grandfather was Jewish. I'm an atheist. My mother was Catholic. So I'm a little bit mixed up. But I grew up uh, in a Jewish neighborhood in the Bronx. And that was Tom Likas's last meal. You can listen to his podcast at blowmeuptom.com and buy a bottle of his wine at tom.wine. Thanks to Lou Rosa of Marconda's Meats, you can visit him and his family at the Original Farmer's Market in Los Angeles. Or I also saw that you can order his meat on Amazon Fresh. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me, theme music by Prom Queen. And I'm super excited to announce that coming up in two weeks, we will have an episode with celebrity chef Paula Dean, a.k.a. Paula Dane. I hate to bring up an ex right at the beginning, but I was kind of chuckling this morning because I was reading about you and I didn't know that your ex's name was Jimmy Dean. And I'm like, of course she married a sausage. (laughs) His name is Jimmy Dean. (laughs) That's right. So that is coming up in two weeks. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. You can do that uh, with your mouth, which is old fashioned, like going to the butcher. Or you can do it like a modern man or woman on the Internet. You know, tell your friends on social media. And uh, the best thing you can do is subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. 